0: Hi there, and welcome to the Mind Coaching Podcast. You can find more episodes on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just search Mind Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Nielsen, a Norwegian success mindset coach, who alongside this podcast help business owners and sports people develop the mental skills they need to excel in stressful situations, achieve consistent success, and attain peak performance. (laughs) Since I started making podcasts one year ago, I have the honor of, interview, of interviewing some incredible people you can check out after this episode. Former Harvard professor, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. Russell Foster, he's a professor in circuit in neuroscience. Professor John ray he's a professor of medicine at the Boston University and a best-selling author. Chris Voss is a former lead hostage international negotiator for the FBI. Uh, Colin O'Brady is a two-time world record holder for Explorers Grand Slam and Seven Summit Speed Records and many, many more. In this episode, I talk about regrowing human body parts with Professor Dr. Stephen Badilak. Dr. Stephen Badilak is a professor in the Department of Surgery and Deputy Director of the McGovern Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Dr. Badlack has practiced both veterinary and human medicine, and he holds over 50 US patents and 200 patents worldwide. He has authored more than 250 scientific publications and 20 book chapters. He has served as a chair of several study sections at the National Institute of Health and lots more. You can read more about Dr. Stephen Badlack. In this episode, we talk about what is Matrix and how did they discover it, what is regenerative medicine, how does it work. How did they discover it? Was it a coincidence? What is stem cells? And how do they work together with the matrix? Can matrix be used together with CRISPR, the, the technique, when it comes to different diseases, osteoporosis, and the people that have uh, their muscles growing back and fingertips growing back? I really enjoyed this episode with uh, Dr. Badlack. He's uh, truly informative and a extremely intelligent man, so... Thank you so much for listening and uh, enjoy this episode with Doctor Stephen Badilak. Stephen, can you please uh, can you please uh, tell the listeners of uh, how you came into uh, how you came into this uh, profession before we get into matrix and what you're actually doing.
1: Well, that's an interesting question because the uh, the the field of tissue engineering and regenerative medicine didn't even exist uh, thirty years ago. It just uh, Matter of fact, the, the the term tissue engineering was coined at a meeting. I think it was in 1987, and then uh, regenerative the uh, addition of the words regenerative medicine didn't occur until about 2000, when uh, stem cells became uh, very. It was obvious that stem cells were going to play a big role in uh, in uh, any sort of new tissues that would be created. Um, so the the field sort of grew up around what I happened to be doing at the time, and I was just starting out myself, pretty much. So I, I um, and frankly, um, I I got lucky. Uh, we were doing a particular experiment where we were trying to um, look for a way to treat patients with heart failure by by redirecting their their blood and having uh, the, the skeletal muscle uh, pump in it to help the heart muscle. And uh, then we started learning that uh, the, the tissues were changing and the materials that we were using for the, for the tubing, which were natural tissues, um, could actually morph or change into uh, blood vessel-like tissues. So we started asking questions, how is this happening? And it fell right in line with tissue engineering. So sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. You just, uh, <laughs> right place at the right time
0: but what is uh, what is matrix i've i've seen some of your uh, lectures on yeah. uh, online I'm, I'm still curious what is it
1: right so so uh, the easiest uh, way to think about the um, extracellular matrix is uh any every single tissue in our body uh is is composed of cells different types of cells skin cells heart cells whatever every cell um secretes or or releases uh, material around it—it's sort of like building its own house. It 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 has molecules that it likes to live in. The heart heart matrix is different than, say, skin matrix or brain matrix. But every tissue has matrix, and as it turns out, um, th- this uh, extracellular, meaning outside the cell, matrix. Um, Used to be considered uh, it had to only have a structural function. It was it, everybody thought its job was to hold things together, uh, to provide for shape and form and strength of tissues. Um, and but now, if uh, anybody that works in this field at all understands that it's actually loaded with signaling molecules and it's it's a medium that uh, adjacent cells use to talk to each other. So it does have a structural function, but probably more importantly, it has an instructive um, function uh, that tells uh, cells what to do. Uh, You know, when you lift weights, uh, you know, you should, uh, the muscle cells should get bigger. Um, When you get injured, you should um, have these sorts of Modifiers for the inflammatory response, and so what we that what we learned to do was uh, decellularize a tissue, or to take all of the cells out and only leave the matrix. So we we ended up with a material that was full of structural and functional molecules that uh, have a lot of uh, useful medical applications.
0: How do you extract this? Uh, this uh, the cell? Yeah. So so. Uh, I believe you asked me how we um,
1: remove the cells from tissues. Yes. And every single uh, tissue has a different recipe that we use uh, to decellularize uh, the the tissue. And the reason is because they're they're so different. The the dermis, which is right underneath the outer layer of your skin, is very tough and dense tissue, whereas the small intestine is totally different. So we use a combination of chemicals and enzymes and rinses uh, that, that assure the removal of all of the, the, the broken cells and cell remnants because we basically lice or, or break the cells and then rinse out all of their, uh, the cell debris. Um, and the goal is to use as mild a, a method as possible so that you don't damage the remaining matrix. You get rid of the cells, but you want to leave mother, mother Nature's version of this scaffold material intact. Now, obviously, there's going to always be some little bit degree of change, but you want to
0: minimize that. So how does this To, for example, stem cells?
1: Stem cells are... Um, everybody knows what stem cells are, or at least uh, they have their own idea of what stem cells are. And I think if you ask the average person on the street, what is regenerative medicine, one of the first things that they would say is, well, it's stem cells. And um, I, I think it's fair to say that probably... 70 percent at least of the people who are working in the field um, are working from a cell-based approach stem cells they're trying to get stem cells to turn into whatever tissue they're interested in heart muscle or skin or whatever Um, and uh, this is kind of interesting because uh, even though there's a terrific biology behind stem cells. We now understand how important they are in normal tissue development and, and replacing tissues. Um, uh, th- they have really not fulfilled the promise yet in terms of therapy. Uh, there's a website called clinicaltrials.gov, and uh, it it lists all the registered uh, clinical trials uh, are out there for all different applications. And if you type in um, stem cells and cl- clinical trials—you get about uh, twenty-eight hundred different registered clinical trials. Now that is an incredible <laughs> number of of stem cell trials going on, and this has been going on now for some time. So if you think of the manpower and the dollars and the patients and resources that have gone into that, it's uh, it's remarkable. Um, and then if you uh, we're to ask a, a group of physicians or surgeons, uh, any any group, you know, what patient walks through your door today with any problem that you routinely treat with stem cells because it's better than the standard of care? The room is pretty quiet because there is nothing that we're doing routinely with stem cells, and that doesn't mean that they're not going to work. What it means is we haven't figured it out yet. Uh, we've learned a lot about stem cell biology. But uh, there, there's, uh, there are now we understand some of the reasons uh, for this. And, and probably the main reason is that we, we take a, a a beautiful stem cell and we harvest it from the body. We can get them from blood or adipose fat tissue or other sources, umbilical cord. And then we manipulate them and purify them and try to expand them in culture so we have enough to work with. And then we have to store them. And then we have to inject the uh, inject them back into a patient into some area where there's a problem. Well, maybe it's into a scar in the heart from a heart attack. Uh, and, and so we put them in an abnormal environment, and then we expect them or hope that they will turn into a functioning heart tissue. By all that manipulation and, and the abnormal environment, it's really not surprising at all that uh, the, most of the cells die very quickly, uh, and there, there are some... Effects that are have been measured, but they're more likely the effects of uh, on adjacent cells and not the stem cells themselves that that become new new tissue. So um, that that you know, in hindsight, you look and you say, oh, well, I guess we should have probably predicted that." But uh, sometimes you have to. You have to do things to find out that they're not going to work.
0: Yeah, but how how did you uh, find out that you could uh, grow uh, human body parts back, like uh, fingertips and so on? Yeah. So, so uh,
1: if we think about what I just mentioned in terms of the uh, environment into which we put these cells, if the extracellular matrix represents the Mother Nature's version of an ideal microenvironment and we're able to preserve it and it's loaded with signals, what we have found is that when, when you take the matrix alone and you implant it into the body, uh, in let's say you put it into muscle where there's a muscle, uh, defect, the, the body begins to interact with the matrix. It breaks it down and then it releases all of these signals. Now. So some of these signals are actually recruit, uh, endogenous stem cells endogenous by that i mean the stem cells that are in lo- in local tissues and maybe some that are in the circulation and they uh, so so it's like a homing device and really that's that kind of makes sense because mother nature probably has lots of different ways of activating these cells when they're needed and some of those ways reside within the extracellular matrix so by placing a matrix there you're actually Now, avoiding all of the steps in harvesting these cells and manipulating them and re-injecting them, you're just calling them to the site. So we know that this happens, and now you have cells coming into a site with a much more friendly environment, and as long as the other uh, factors within that tissue are, are... normal, you know, for example, it's a muscle that's expected to contract and lift weights or do whatever, Um, those cells get the appropriate signals and say, okay, this is what I'm supposed to turn into. So now we didn't know that ahead of time. Uh, You know, I I just said, if we could have predicted that and tested it and found that it worked, I'd say, boy, we're pretty smart. But again, we're just lucky. We saw (laughs) these things happen and uh, we we have figured it out after the fact. So Uh, Mother nature is much smarter than we are, and we're just trying to catch up a little bit.
0: Uh, So if I understand correctly from uh, what i am seeing on YouTube, uh, at least, is that uh, if you have lost 60% uh, 60 of a muscle, for example, you can grow that back again?
1: Yes. We published a paper uh, about it a year and a half ago on the first 13 patients um, that uh, had a condition that's called volumetric muscle loss. Uh, And what that means is that, Muscle. Our muscle tissue has a small degree of ability to regenerate all the time. We get injured all the time. We get bruises, we bumps, we over, you know, we run too far or whatever, uh, and we don't even know it, and we don't end up with scars all over. So the muscle can regenerate a little bit. But if you have a tra- a, a traumatic injury, you know, like um, a car accident, or or you're a soldier, you know, and a roadside bomb goes off, you lose big pieces of muscle that the body cannot. Uh, compensate for. and You end up with a huge defect and scarring. So uh, that's volumetric muscle loss. So we took 13 patients who had failed every attempt to try to help them. Um, they had uh, all sorts of surgeries to try to move muscles from one part to another, to grow muscles, to physical therapy, all these things. And um, they failed all of them. And most of these patients were ready to amputate their limb because they just could not use them. They, and they, or they were really struggling. And uh, we showed that we, we um, were able to grow back about 30 to 35% of the muscle in, uh, on the average for these. Some of them, you know, better than that. But every single one of them improved their quality of life. They now had enough muscle tissue so that they didn't have to walk with a cane or they wow. could, didn't have to be in a wheelchair or they could take steps without, uh, you know, help. And so we made a difference in their life. And it's not a perfect solution, but but it's a step in the right direction.
0: And I saw some re- results that uh, one of them had o- almost 300% improvement or something, if I remember correctly.
1: Yeah, yeah, one guy, yeah. Well, you know, it depends on where they start from. But mm. uh, we we did this study right. And um, so we're, what we'd like to do now is to follow that up with a multi-center study uh, to show that, you know, hey, this isn't just uh, one place that this make this stuff work. It's got but you have to understand the science behind it. It's more than just sticking this the, a material into a defect site and and then forgetting about it. it you, you've got to understand the biology, understand the importance of physical therapy along with it uh, and so forth. But it, if you understand the biology, it works.
0: Yeah. Uh- from what I can remember from uh, from the video is that they had physical uh, therapy 24 to 48 hours after accident.
1: Yeah, that's pretty remarkable, isn't it? I mean, if you see some of these patients, they have huge defects. You know, they'd be missing half of their thigh. Mm. And uh, so they have a major surgery, and then we're asking them to do rehabilitation, and not just passive rehabilitation, uh, between 24 and 48 hours later. Now, conventional surgeons and therapists uh, Physicians would say, "Oh, what well, geez! Let's let them recover. Let's give them six to eight weeks. Then we'll start worrying about physical therapy." But if you do that, then you you miss the opportunity because the cell, the, the materials degraded. It's recruited the cells that are waiting for signals to say, "What should I turn into?" And if you don't do anything, then they just say, "Okay, I guess you don't need me," and they turn into some sort of a loose adipose tissue or something else. So that's where the biology comes in, as in with the surgical techniques. So.
0: Wow, uh, a while back I had uh, a guest uh, that is an Australian guy, and he got bit by a shark. Uh, the shark bit off his uh, hand and uh, one of his legs. Uh, and since he was in the Australian Special Forces, he was trained to uh, think about the mental part. That when uh, he got some obstacles, he started to train immediately. So when he woke up from coma, he immediately started working out. And he was back as a diving instructor, I think, after uh, six months, nine months, or something. So he said that some of the reason that he got back so fast was that he, was that he started to train immediately after he woke up from coma. So in some ways, he did what you were saying <laughs> about the physical training. Yeah, yeah, you know, and uh,
1: you know, growing back um, limbs uh, or hands or digits and stuff is is a uh, a whole other level, and it but it's an interesting level because, uh, in my opinion, the field of uh, regenerative medicine should be uh, interacting much more with the field of developmental biology uh, and even immunology. Then, uh, part of the problem is that uh, specialists in these different areas tend to um, they, they they get they don't like to stay in their comfort zone, you know so they they don't want to reach out to other other specialties because they don't they feel like they don't know anything when really the biggest advances come from uh sharing ideas mm-hmm. and in my opinion, if we don't understand how normal development occurs uh in in tissues and organs and limbs and everything um then I think we're we're really handicapping ourselves and coming up with strategies to regrow them in a from regenerative
0: medicine standpoint so I think there's a lot to be learned and uh, we need to do more of this uh, how many studies uh, are being done in your uh, field you said that it was uh, quite a large number in stem cells but uh, how many is it in uh, your kind of field Yeah, w- w- uh,
1: studies for Which kind of studies are you asking?
0: Um, uh, Growing uh, limbs and uh, human body parts back, for example.
1: Um, Well, there's there's lots of studies going on in, um, uh, for example, non-healing skin wounds, skin ulcers. Uh, You know, the idea would be, okay, look, can we just... uh, Stop whatever's going on, and and instruct the body to regrow normal skin over this. There's there's quite a few of those. I couldn't even hazard a guess, but it, I wouldn't be surprised if there's hundreds of studies, particularly if you, if you if you look worldwide. So that's a very common application. Now that's a lot different than growing back um, brain tissue after a stroke, uh, and and there are stem cell therapies going on for that, uh, uh, but. They're they're having the same problem, you know, that I mentioned first is Mm. that uh, the the cells don't survive. There are also um, studies going on in how to salvage or to regrow portions of the heart after a heart attack. Um, And and, uh, each of them has a different approach. You know, some use straight cells. Others use combination of cells and biomaterials. Uh, there's a very interesting study going on with the the material that we work with, this extracellular matrix, um, that is uh, put into a, a what we call a hydrogel form. So it's a liquid at room temperature and it turns into a gel at body temperature, and it's being injected into uh, the area of a heart attack in patients. Um, after the, after they've had their heart attack and it's, it's just in a phase 1 trial now but as i understand it the results are going pretty good it's not my trial it's someone else's but it's uh, uh you know so they're wow. we're trying we're trying we're into a lot of different things
0: yeah well wow. how far away do you think we are on the heart attack matter
1: well uh the the um uh, company is called Ventrix and uh, they're they're located in San Diego and uh, as I understand it, you know, they're uh, close to completing their phase one clinical trial, which then would allow them to go into a phase two cl- trial, which would be more patients. So uh, it takes takes a while for these sorts of things to get through the regulatory process. Uh, but, um, you know, it's, I guess the answer is patients are being treated right now, but it's not it's not widely available yet, and we need to... We need to finish the studies and show that they're uh, that uh, it's it's as effective that that it truly is effective. Uh, that's what studies are for.
0: Uh, you also in the same study talk about uh, in your presentation. You also talk about uh, removing the colon uh, because of uh, acid reflux or cancer, uh, and then you also talk about how you can use your kind of therapy to not remove the colon. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, that one? Yeah, uh, you talk about cancer in general, or the colon study? The, the colon study. Yeah. So um, uh,
1: there's a lot of problems <laughs> in the colon, uh, uh, not just cancer, but uh, probably more prevalent is uh, uh, what's called inflammatory bowel disease and uh, ulcerative colitis, and and Crohn's disease, are two devastating problems. That we really, we have made very little progress on in the treatment for for thirty or forty years. In fact, we're fundamentally doing the same things now that we did before just a few different drugs and a couple of other things. but uh, we've not we've not done anything to really cure the cure the problem. So uh, we talked about one thing that these uh, extracellular matrices do in recruiting stem cells there's something else i think is equally or maybe even more important that we've learned and that is that there are signaling molecules in in these materials that um interact with the immune system the our immune system is what's responsible for um fighting off bugs and inflammation and and healing wounds and such afterwards uh so we need it but uh it's got we've got to be able to turn it off you know it's supposed to do its job stop and then let, you know, go back to normal. And if you can't go back to normal, at least leave a scar there to hold things together. Now, in, in conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, for whatever reason, the inflammation doesn't turn off. Uh, it just continues. And when, when we learned that, one, that that the matrix has signaling molecules that actually can turn off uh, or at least suppress the inflammatory response. Um, we, we have begun investigating its use in, in um, conditions like ulcerative colitis. So we haven't done this in people yet, but our animal studies are actually quite, quite promising um, because, uh, again, I mentioned that we could form a hydrogel out of this material, a liquid that, that then turns into a gel. And by delivering this To these patients uh, by an enema, which they do now anyway for their own medications, Um, we've shown, at least in an animal model, that we can very quickly uh, suppress the active inflammatory response and get these people back to a a state uh, of being able to function. Because the the problem is they get these flares and they last for weeks to months. You never know; they get better for a while, then it comes back, and it's just devastating. So. If we're able, if this is, if this really works out like I hope it will, um, it would be something that um, these patients could use and and get a a a rapid resolution of their flare. It's not going to cure the disease, but it takes care of that inflammatory response in a way that gets them back to normal, normal at least for until their next flare. The um, again, this this makes sense too uh, from Mother Nature standpoint. I always like to go back to Mother Nature because if If I can, if I can rationalize and say uh, that makes sense that there would be signaling molecules there uh, to for for all of us, then it's uh, I feel a lot more. I sleep better at night than thinking. uh, Well, we see this response. I don't know how it works, but trust me, it works. That that doesn't go too far. Um, But if you think about the matrix and you get any type of a tissue injury, you get this inflammatory response uh, immediately. uh, But then. You want it to shut off. So, as part of the inflammatory response, it, it breaks down the the normal extracellular matrix in our body, which then would send signals to say, "Okay, enough's enough. Time to settle down. Let's resolve this and move on." And so, what we've done again is perhaps just concentrated these these factors uh, by by placing a form of the matrix at the site uh, that that is able to do this, and it does it only temporarily because the matrices get Get degraded and broken down, which is what you want to happen to so release these things. So again, we got lucky; didn't know that we saw that it was happening, um, and figured it out eventually. But uh, yeah, so Mother Nature's been good to me. She's yeah, you know, done,
0: you know, trying to figure out. She's releasing these secrets a little bit at a time. Uh, what do you think about uh, osteoporosis?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's one that I don't, I don't see how this would help, but this particular approach would help because. Um, you know that's a. Although bone is a tissue, you know the problem there is a weak bone, not enough uh, uh, calcium and other minerals that contribute to, to bone, and it's system wide, it's systemic, right? Um, and the applications that we've been addressing have been um, localized to particular areas uh you know uh, uh, the esophagus the colon uh uh, we mentioned the heart tissue uh, the brain but it's a it's a particular area and systemically the only way you can treat those things is if you you had something that you injected intravenously or got absorbed and and over time so i don't i don't at least in my world i don't see an application for that in our approach
0: are there any any other cancer uh circumstances that you can see that uh, your kind of method can be
1: used? Yeah, well, you know, cancer is kind of is an interesting one because mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously it's a devastating problem and depending upon the tissue that's involved, the treatments are different, but all of the treatments are, are nasty. You, know, you use drugs that kill cells, you use radiation, you do other things that really uh, you can't avoid doing damage to a lot of the normal tissue that's around the cancer. And then the question becomes, are there any cancer cells left? And uh, have you damaged the tissue so much that it can't heal, right? And that's really a problem with radiation. So one of the things that has been interesting uh, for us to observe is, because I always get asked this question, well, if these matrices are so friendly to cells, wouldn't cancer cells like them? And just, uh, you know, you you wouldn't want to put them at a site where you've taken cancer out. And uh, that's, I think, it's a legitimate question uh, but we now have enough experience that um, this is uh, d- does not at all seem to be the case. In fact, it seems to be able to enhance the ability of these irradiated tissues to now heal better than they would otherwise. and um, part part of the reason for that is it uh, is this is where it's fun to be a scientist because we understand uh, we we've learned that this Matrix that has signals in it that is the result of what a cell has secreted uh, sends signals back to the cell and they talk into each other all the time, and um, it, the normal matrix um, tells the cell to be normal. And so, uh, however, uh, a cancerous cell has, secretes a matrix as well, but it's totally different, and it's got signals that that actually allow the, uh, an abnormal cell type to be there. So that's a little bit of background in that if you take a, uh, a cancer cell and s- several people have done this over the past several decades, and I don't understand why it hasn't, um, resulted in, in, in different approaches, but you can take a, a, uh, a cancer cell and put it on a normal extracellular matrix and it, and it really down-regulates the cancer phenotype. It starts to look and act much more normal and less cancer-like. And alternatively, you can take a normal cell and put it onto a cancerous ECM, and it starts to act weird. So there, there's all sorts of crosstalk going back and forth here. So uh, that, that, as background, what that means is that if you um, have had surgical excision of a cancer or radiation or chemotherapy, and you put... An, extracellular matrix in there that is from normal, healthy tissue, which is what we always do, um, <clears throat> then even if there are cancer cells there, they're not going to find a friendly environment for, for growing cancer. In fact, you might even do a little bit of good in, in terms of changing them towards a more normal state if there are any cancer cells left. And that's not just theory now, because um, we also published a paper um several years ago where we treated um, uh, five patients that had esophageal cancer, which is a horrendous disease, Um, and uh, we were able to totally strip away the cancer and replace the uh, lining of the esophagus with the extracellular matrix that allowed them to grow back a functional mucosa, and, and they went on to live normal lives without any recurrence of the cancer, uh, we've done this in more than a dozen patients now, and they are uh, seven to eight years out. So we, I feel very comfortable in the statement that uh, you can use this material in a, an area of cancer and uh, say use it safely.
0: Uh, is it possible? Obviously, for twelve persons, it's possible. But is it possible for normal people to get this kind of treatment?
1: Yeah, for, for obviously for for the depending upon the the problem that they have, mm. they. Um, you, they're gonna, right now since some of these things are not widely available they're going to have to do a little searching but but it is available but but the people who are doing that um, are actually uh, looking for patients you know to, to get these to the next stage so for example you know the the heart application you know they're screening patients they've got criteria so that, that they could use and then um, you know the, you can get in touch with the, the right people uh, by searching by looking that one up online, hmm. the esophageal and the muscle stuff, for example, um, you know, we, we uh, get in, I get inquiries almost every day and we um, send them to the, the doctors or the places where we know they're using the, these sorts of therapies. There aren't many of them right now. So uh, we got to do a little work, unfortunately right now, but that's just, you know, hopefully eventually it will be much more widely available.
0: Uh, this is going to be a, uh a- Maybe a stupid question, but since I'm not a scientist, I'm going to ask anyway. Uh, it's a new method called the CRISPR. Uh, is it possible to use uh, CRISPR together with uh, your kind of uh, treatment?
1: Right. Well, well, CRISPR is used to modify the genetic, the expression of the genetic code, um, and so that right, right away we're t- that's a cell-based approach. Okay, and. Um, It's an it's an incredibly powerful tool that's been developed uh, to and very specific. You can target a uh, a particular site on the genome, and you know now that the human genome has been sequenced, uh, you can say, okay, I know that your particular problem is with this particular gene. You could go in and change that, and you know. So there's obviously a lot of studies and applications of this going on now. The the concern is that uh, you it, are you making a change in the genetic code that could be heritable? By that I mean, could it be transferred to the next generation and the next generation and so forth? And what what are the uh, possible consequences of that? And it's a it's a legitimate and I think very serious concern. We we cannot jump into just using. CRISPR technology to to treat any patient until we truly understand the the potential ramifications of it. Uh, you know that being said, uh, it has the potential to uh, really make a difference in the lives of patients who have known genetic defects that give the, for problems like muscular dystrophy or cystic fibrosis or uh, other uh, known Genetic abnormalities—it's—it's—it's uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting, and and really, CRISPR is now being exciting time to be in uh, biology and molecular biology right now.
0: And when it uh, comes to growing uh, growing limbs back, uh, I'm still I'm still curious. Uh, maybe I'm just uh, just not understanding it. But what? Uh, um, how is this? What is the question? Uh, how is it? possible that, uh, for example, our liver can uh, grow back, but uh, our uh, kidneys can't do it. Do we know why?
1: Yeah, this is uh, I think one of the more fascinating things about regenerative medicine and why I uh, earlier had said I think we have a lot to learn from developmental biologists. There are um, some species like the salamander that, that can grow back almost any body part. You can chop a limb off, you know, and six to eight weeks later, it's growing a new limb exactly the same as, and you do it again and again. Uh, you can take part of their heart, even part of their, you know, almost any tissue and organ. And uh, there's variations on that theme all the way up to uh, people uh, who have. We have a, a a couple of organs that can regenerate. You mentioned one, the liver. Um, it's a it's a probably the most regenerative organ in the body. Uh, the bone marrow constantly regenerates and turns over all of the cells that contribute to the blood. The outer layers of the skin regenerate all the time. Same thing with the lining of the intestine. Bone bone does a little bit, but the rest of our tissues don't. And the question is why? You know, how through evolution did we change uh, to, um, and why did we change? And um, one of the theories is that at, some, at about 16 to 18 weeks of gestation in a human, uh, our immune system develops, and it's at the same time that we lose a lot of this regenerative capacity, and there appears to be a, a very uh, close relationship between uh, uh, the development of our immune system, which allows us to respond to challenges and injuries and so forth. By forming scar tissue, and I think it probably has something to do with survival. You know, we developed mechanisms for surviving these types of injuries, but we did it at the expense of regenerating the tissue. And so, the real question is, and and you can do this as a fetus uh, uh, before before that time. So the genetic information is still there. So the intriguing question is if we could understand how to turn those genes back on or suppress the ones that are keeping us from doing it. Would it be possible to at least temporarily and maybe locally revisit our, our development, our embryologic development? I think it's one of the more uh, interesting questions uh, for the field of regenerative medicine. But um, it, it, And we're developing the tools to understand it now with the whole genome thing and understanding, you know, what genes are turned on and off and so
0: forth. That's fun. Uh, what is it that you find so interesting about this, uh, Stephen?
1: I think I've got you know one of the best jobs in the world. I love coming into work every day. I lo- I'm surrounded by really smart people. We've got all this terrific stuff we've been talking about going on in other fields, uh, in genomics and molecular biology and developmental biology and immunology. And um, it's a chance to, to, to bring these things together. So uh, I, I think it, it's a matter of... It's you know some people are just they they get very excited about um uh the frontier you know mixed trying things that before were thought to be impossible and in many ways that's what we're we are doing um you know we uh, never before you know thought we we would uh have skin in a bottle we now grow skin in a bottle uh you know and that's used therapeutically. Uh, we, we've got uh, these stem cells that we can change, uh, manipulate their genome on. I, I think it's a terrifically exciting time. However, that being said, I think we've been at this now about 25 years in regenerative medicine, and um, you know there are certain things that the original approaches that uh, I think have very limited clinical ap- uh, potential. Um, but I don't think we can grow. Uh, organs in a bottle uh, or and uh, put them on a shelf, uh, at least not for very many tissues. Um, and we have to learn how to to use the body as the bioreactor. In other words, do things in the patient, let the patient uh, regrow. So we have to revisit our, our thinking. Um, you know how what are the true limitations of stem cell therapy, or what are, what do we have to do differently? You know what sort of molecules can we deliver that that make a difference? Because no single molecule, the body doesn't work that way. It always has a bunch of different things working together. So how do we how do we manage that uh, landscape? Um, what sort of biomaterials can you put in that aren't going to cause a problem? Uh, we need to really go back, I think, to the drawing board on a couple of those and mix them with these new ideas that we've been talking about.
0: It's time. What do you think is the largest obstacle?
1: Obstacle? biggest obstacle? Uh you know, uh, frankly, I think um, the the uh, one of the biggest obstacles is um, not the science. It's actually the other things it takes to uh, translate discovery to patient care. Um, because we can, you know, we, we can get some pretty good results, and 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 we're not alone. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of people around the world that have very promising technologies. But uh, if you think about it, um, if doc, doctors around the world are pretty much trained the same way. They go to school for a long time, and they're taught by people who've done things certain ways, and that's how you, you, you pass and get on to the next place, you treat patients that way. And it becomes the standard of care, and that's how you get reimbursed usually for doing things. And there are codes for reimbursement. Uh, so I, I oftentimes use the example: if if you have a particular uh, a patient with a particular condition, and you want to try an unconventional therapy, something new in regenerative medicine that really has a lot of promise, works great in the lab, and you go ahead and use it, um, you have your colleagues looking at you saying, "What are you doing?" You know you're supposed to treat this disease like this, even this peer pressure. Then you've got lawyers waiting to sue you if something goes wrong uh, because just the way it is, particularly in the United States, very litigious. uh, And you have um, reimbursement mechanisms that don't pay for new things. So you've got colleagues against you, lawyers waiting to sue you. You're not going to get paid. (laughs) But what's the the idea? Like, what am I doing here? So I think actually it's those things that are uh, the biggest obstacle to translating promising discovery to patients.
0: We're stopping ourselves, actually. Yeah. You are a highly published uh, doctor. Uh, You have over 250 published articles, from what I can uh, remember. What was the first uh, publications, do you remember? Yeah, I'm curious about uh, where you started. If you can remember yeah. what your first publications was.
1: Yeah, well, my training's a little bit different. I um, uh, I, I was I I was a first a veterinarian. I, okay. I practiced veterinary veterinary medicine, uh, and then went back to school and uh, and got a, uh, a doctorate degree in pathology, uh, and then after that, then went to medical school. <laughs> uh, so I was like, you know, like you know, okay, how many <laughs> how much. Punishment? Can I take right? So, um, so my thinking was was a little different, and I always knew that I was interested in the in the uh, whys and can we change things? And then with that training, though, I developed a, a um, an understanding comparative uh, pathology, if you will. You know, okay, uh, humans get this particular disease, but here's a couple species that get something, and so I start to think like that, and so uh, you know my. Some of my first publications dealt with um, uh, this, this, these types of comparative um, events, uh, but they were mainly from the veterinary uh, perspective because that's where I, where I started. Um, but it was uh, really uh, the, the first publications in what I'm doing now occurred around 1988, 89 Ooh, uh, when we cool. got You know, like I said, lucky with that experiment with a heart where we were looking for a, you know, a bypass around the heart. Um, I'd say that was the turning point. Yeah. So since then, all my almost everything we've been doing is related to understanding uh, how we can develop this matrix to to make it uh, uh, useful for treating certain conditions. Uh, and I, and I look at, I, I, it's this, I isn't directly an answer to what you asked, but I'll t- I'm gonna say it anyway. Hi, please. Um, the, uh, about three months ago I was in the laboratory and I was looking around and more than 90% of what was going on in the laboratory were things that I never was trained in. They were their techniques or tools or equipment and things that have come about since then. And, um, the only way that I stay on top of things is being surrounded by, you know, these uh, young people uh, who come in and, and basically bring the techniques with them. And so my laboratory stays up to speed and I stay up to speed that way. But I don't know, you know, if I was out there practicing seeing patients still, like I, I saw patients for 16 years, if I was still doing only that, I don't know how I would keep up, I wouldn't be able to. So it's, you know, it's, uh, it's really hard uh, to, to, to keep up with science.
0: And especially when uh, we are stopping ourselves, it's even harder. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, what do you think is, uh, what do you think we're going to see in the next five years from your, uh, from your studies?
1: You know, one of the more exciting uh, things in regenerative medicine, I think is the, uh, uh, is a field called whole organ engineering. And, um, we'll take the liver for example. Um, if you take a, you know, back up so that maybe there's, uh, so that your listeners understand almost all of these extracellular matrix materials that are on the market now are derived from animals. Uh, they're, they're a byproduct of the agricultural industry. And the only way that we can get away with that, and this is something else we figured out, is that um, the extracellular matrix molecules are so important and so common that they've been preserved through evolution so that your extracellular matrix is much like mine, like a pig's. Like a probably like a dinosaur you know um, and therefore if you get rid of all the cells that cause the problems in transplantation um, you're left with just the matrix so you can use these these extracellular matrices so back to the, the whole organ stuff um, there are there's a very active um, group of investigators now who uh, we take a liver and we decellularize the liver So there's no cells. All you have is this three-dimensional structure that's almost transparent. It's just the extracellular matrix. And then this is where you combine it with with stem cells. You can take, uh, let's say you needed a liver because you've been uh, drinking too much for too many years. Uh, And I'm not trying to get personal here. But but that problem obviously exists. So um, we take a scraping, say, from the inside of your cheek, take a couple cells, We can take those cells now turn them into stem cells, your stem cells, and then take those and turn them into liver cells. And this is called it's a it's a variation on stem cell biology called inducible pluripotential stem cells or IPS. And so we can take your stem cells now and repopulate that three dimensional scaffold so that uh, we create your liver, a new healthy liver. And then then, of course, we've got to figure out the surgical technique to hook the plumbing up and what do we do with the old one and this sort of thing. But it's really an exciting uh, uh, potential solution to the whole organ uh, donor-type problem, the shortage. And if, if that happens, obviously, you would not have to be on immunosuppressive drugs. So we get rid of all of those problems as well. And uh, there's a lot of work going on in, in whole organ engineering for liver, kidney, lung, heart. Uh, pancreas. uh, And I think that that is going to be, that is going to really happen, particularly in the liver and the lung uh, within the next five years. I think you're going to see the first patients uh, had that, that would be implanted with, with these things. Now we don't have to regrow a whole liver because we don't need a whole liver. We are, we do a lobe
0: of a lung, but I think that's a incredibly exciting. That is science fiction for sure, and we are going to get extremely old. <laughs> yeah, yeah <that's> right. <laughs> if we right. can change if we can change everything, we're going to be old. So we're going to be a lot of old people now.
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm going to be one of them here shortly. So <laughs> the uh, you know that that brings up the, the ethical question too. You know, uh, how far do we go with this stuff? You know, I and I, I always like to start a talk by saying the goal of regenerative medicine is not to extend the length of life, uh, but but rather the quality of life, you know, so that uh, however old you you, you are going to be or when you're going to die, you know, you feel good up to that point, you know, a very short, quick exit, as opposed to these debilitating diseases that we just can't treat right now. Um, So it's quality,
0: not quantity, in my opinion. So it's one last question, uh, doctor. If I cut off my finger, if I cut it off <laughs> in an accident, uh, what do I do to grow it back again? Do I fly over, fly over? Well, or what do I do? <laughs> you know, there, there was a patient that
1: uh, got an awful lot of publicity and, uh, uh, uh he, he's probably, that patient probably has accounted for thousands of emails that I've received over the years. And, uh, what he did was chop off the tip of his finger and, uh, um, about half of the last, you know, your last uh, phalanx, uh, did, uh, phalanx there, uh, at the, you know, distal to the last knuckle. Um. And it basically grew, it grew back. He treated it with this material because he was related to somebody who worked in the lab and got his hands on some material. And uh, <laughs> I had like no idea. About it. <laughs> yeah. So as it turns out, we, you know, there's uh, a couple of people who are, are actively doing that, uh, treating patients like this. And as long so with the digit, if you've, if ba- really, I think what it comes down to is if you've got the base of your nail left, where the stem cells are for, for the, for the, the fingernail, um, there's the potential we could really get pretty good results with it. It surprises me, you know. I, uh, but we can't can't regrow back a, a knuckle or a joint. Okay. Um, so the tips of fingers, we seem to be able to help a bit, um, but uh, it's not magic. Uh, it's not pixie dust, as people like say. It, it's there's really some science behind it. We talked about some of the things that would happen there, and it sort of makes sense.
0: Thank you so much for your time, uh, Doctor. And uh it oh, was, you're, welcome. It, was, you're uh, welcome. it was truly informative and uh I think we're living very in uh, in a time that everything is happening so fast. So uh yeah. I'm curious to see where we are in five years and how old yeah. we're going to be. So, yeah, um,
1: you don't you don't ever want to need what I do for a living. <laughs> <personally>. <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so good. much for your time, doctor. You're welcome. Yeah. You have a good evening. Yeah, you too.
0: Bye bye.